Hello and welcome to Scribe to Screen, a podcast about visual adaptations of books from across the ages. I'm Charles, and this is the ethereal entity I've been trapped on Earth with for hundreds of thousands of years, <laughs> who I'm occupationally opposed to, but who I've grown to love through the centuries of teasing and slap-up lunches. Kim. Hello. It's Kim <laughs> This week we'll be discussing our first ever TV series, the 2019 TV adaptation of Good Omens which was written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett and originally published in 1990. The blurb on the back of my copy of Good Omens reads, Put Neil Gaiman, bracket, New York Times bestselling author of Nancy Boys and revered creator of Sandman, close bracket, and Terry Pratchett, bracket, New York Times bestselling author of Thud and exalted father of Discworld together, <laughs> close bracket, and all hell breaks loose. According to the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which, the world's only completely accurate book of prophecies written in 1655 before she exploded, the world will end on a Saturday. Next Saturday, in fact, just before dinner. So the armies of good and evil are amassing, Atlantis is rising, frogs are falling, tempers are flaring, everything appears to be going according to the divine plan, except a somewhat fussy angel and a fast-living demon, both of whom have lived among Earth's mortals since the beginning and have grown rather fond of the lifestyle, are not actually looking forward to the coming rapture, and someone seems to have misplaced the Antichrist. I know. <laughs> Already do something about that. This is our entire dynamic. I talk for five minutes and then Charles goes, oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just wait until I start drawing uh, myself as Crowley. And oh my god! Oh no, Studio we should have commissioned Neely to do that one. Episode. No, I'm gonna do it. We're oh, saving no. money. <laughs> We're not saving oh, my no. sanity, but okay. Um... Oh no! And here's the series synopsis on IMDb: A tale of the bungling of Armageddon features an angel, a demon, an eleven-year-old antichrist, and a doomsaying witch. Someone was in a rush to write that. It was Neil Gaiman. He produced the whole series and was just crawling, crawling to the finish <laughs> said, line. You want me to write the, the IMDb copy as well? <laughs> what? Six episodes enough? Nope. No, they were still peeved at him that he wasn't going to extend it into a 50 oh, season geez. long epic against Terry Pratchett. People actually wishes. asked for a second season and like, I'm... of what? <laughs> no! The world nearly ended! <laughs> What do you want from me? Yeah. Where did the stakes go after this? Aziraphale and Crowley have a fight. <laughs> it's just a slice yeah, of life no. drama with Aziraphale and It's literally Crowley, just, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Being married. It sounds like a that. good idea. I'd watch that. Which, yeah. Yeah, would totally yeah. watch. Anyway. So, Charles. <laughs> okay. Personal relationship. Yes. So me. Yeah, my personal relationship with the books and mm. films are very... Uh, films, TV series, I'm never going to get used to that, is very limited because I've never read any Terry Pratchett oh, no. before. Uh, please oh, no. don't shoot me. <laughs> and this is also my first wholly original Neil Gaiman work because the only other thing I've read by him is his Norse mythology. Oh, what? Which is really good, by the way. You should totally read it. I mean, sure. <laughs> it was kind of... No, no. This was just after I had graduated, and it was part of my rehabilitation into society right. after studying med- nothing but medieval lit. Yes. So, yeah, it was like meeting me halfway, a bit of medieval, a bit of contemporary writing. And then COVID happened, and I was forced to isolate from society anyway. So, hooray. Huzzah. I'm still craving society. <laughs> and, yeah, I had not seen the series before now. So... Yep. 
first time for both the book and series. Cool. Welcome, newbie. Uh, <laughs> I first read this book when I was on a Neil Gaiman kick way back in secondary school. Like, I, a friend sent me some photos of, of short stories he'd written from, I think it was the Fragile Things collection, I think it was. Anyway, so I, like, read all his books at once. Um, hilariously, I still not read Anansi Boys, which is, like, <laughs> on the back cover of Good Omens. No desire to read it. <laughs> there was less to put on the back cover, to be honest. Yeah, that's fair. Back then. Um, yeah, I read a bunch of things, and th- this is one of them. This is the first Terry Pratchett I read, and, you know, I've read other Pratchett since then. I think most of his other work is slightly better. Not to not Good Omens, which I like very much. Um, I then proceeded to mostly forget about the book, although it retained a place of fondness in my heart. And then I went to see the series when it came out, basically. Um, mm. Which was our final year of university, Charles. <laughs> because actually it came out in March of 2019. Yeah, you went to see the series. You mean you rolled out of bed... And yeah. instead of writing your essay, you thought, no, I know, I know exactly. How to instead of revising, I lay down on my floor and watched Good Omens. It was a very therapeutic <laughs> experience, and, and made then me wrote feel a lot 50 better. Tumblr essays. I did not write any Tumblr essays actually. Um, so I really like Good Omens. Whoa, I wasn't, I wasn't crazy strength. about it. Um, however, for my internet activity, you'd think I was crazy about it because shortly after Good Omens came out, all of Tumblr went insane. Um, and then immediately afterwards, <laughs> like <laughs> the Tumblr site admins did some weird stuff which made people flee Tumblr en masse, except for all the Good Omens fans. Uh, <laughs> so now my whole Tumblr feed this. is just wall-to-wall Good Omens, and that's the relationship I have with this TV series. Oh, okay. I know nothing about Tumblr. I've not been exposed yeah, to much of it, and they, I've yeah, not been in They instituted the a porn ban with an algorithm that confused a photo of sand dunes for a picture of breasts. So you can imagine... Oh, boy. I can see where this is going. You can imagine that that a lot of stuff got taken down. (laughs) Did they do it for dicks? Yes, they did as well. Because then they'd be in trouble. Yeah, I know. Um, A lot of fan artists quit in protest. A lot of people just left because all their friends were leaving. There were, were like, a nice... There was, like, a nice rash of memes. My favourite was, like, they did a a truth coming of her well to shame humanity version. Uh, (laughs) That was just the well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh no it's just the well you know what kim this yes. reminds me of the novel 1984 by george <laughs> suppressing free speech on the internet oh Crazy. exactly this is exactly like that book 1984 yep um which obviously i've never read of course <laughs> could you name two characters in 1984 <laughs> well Winston the big Smith brother the rats <laughs> And there's oh, his yeah, little there's brother. brother. <laughs> and then there's the state. <laughs> anyway, yes. How was it? My first... <laughs> the popping of my Terry Pratchett. <laughs> Charles! My <laughs> Cherry Pratchett. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is such a mess. I've got an interview in less than two hours. I hate you. Uh, <laughs> I want to start by saying that the TV series is a ridiculously faithful adaptation, mm. uh, obviously the result of having a lot more time than you would for the average motion picture. Yeah. Uh, it definitely uses that time to its advantage. Uh, I read an interview with Neil Gaiman uh, with The Verge, in which he states that Good Omens is a school play for him. 
Yeah. It's a labor of love featuring people he's worked with throughout his career. Just about every actor <laughs> seemed to have read the book like 20 years ago <laughs> and was really hyped to star in the series. Yeah, yeah. So everybody was having a lot of fun when they produced this and it shows. I liked it a lot more in rewatch. Um, the first time I saw it, like, I had good feelings and it made me feel mm. good. But I was like, eh, some of this doesn't work. So I just sort of carried that impression for like a long, long time. And then when I finally rewatched it for this <laughs> podcast, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, I bet some of it's not gonna work. And then it like worked better than I remembered. So now I'm like, oh, this is great, actually. <laughs> I think my real <laughs> opinion's probably somewhere between those two poles. Right. But you're not yeah. gonna see that. You're just gonna hear hyped gushing, Kim. Oh, no. Sorry, oh, no. <laughs> uh, sadly, well, not entirely sadly, it's... Sadly for my ego, this is another case where the author and screenwriter has spoken at length about their adaptation process and details that we wrote down thinking we were being super original in thinking. Mm -hmm. But yes, I made all of these points before researching anything about Gaiman's adaptation process. You can't at me. Uh, also, I'd like to think that our opinions on how these artistic choices turned out are more valuable than us just pointing at differences and laughing at them. Yeah, that's, yeah, That's, that's okay. what I like to think. Fair enough. <laughs> right? <laughs> sure. But yeah, we should link to that interview. It's, it's great stuff. It's very informative. Yeah. If you like the series. Which you should, because it's a good series. And we're going to tell you why. <laughs> so, let's go. <laughs> good Omens <laughs> is not garbage, and here's why. Good omens, it's not garbage, and here's why. And we're going to start with the relationship that broke Tumblr. Hey! No, no, stay, stay, please. <laughs> Hear us out. If you know, you know. <laughs> if you know, you know. If there's one change that the series makes, it's putting more emphasis on Crowley and Aziraphale, uh, which is the only correct answer to anything <laughs> uh, Good Omens related. Yes. So let's gush about that for a while. Woo! Uh, the relationship is far and away the best part of the source text, this show, my life, my existence on this earth. <laughs> and Gamer leans even harder into it here. Yeah. Uh, especially with some <laughs> with some homosexual overtones, you might say. Uh, there are more jokes in here. They're explicitly parallel uh, A and C with yeah. a gay couple. So, like, after Crowley is begging in the uh, Aziraphale in the street to run away with him to Alpha Centauri, a guy in a suit comes up to Aziraphale and says, I've been there too. Trust me, you're better off without him. Which is just, lol. Oh. They know. They know. <laughs> okay, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned this because it's not... You say it's subtext, which I guess it is. Um, people have point blank asked Neil Gaiman, like, are Aziraphale and Crowley gay? And he was like... No, because neither of them are actually men. They're both non-binary people who yes. may or may not have a concept of sex. But they're very much in love. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's canon. Yeah. So they're very much playing off our feeble human ideas of sexuality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yes. you know, the, this is absolutely a romance. <laughs> like, they're totally in love. The author said so. The text says so. Michael Sheen says so. <laughs> David Tennant says so. <laughs> David Tennant doesn't have a Twitter, so he's sort of kept out of this. But Michael Sheen has spoken for him. <laughs> he kind of said it on the 
on the his own podcast. Oh, well, I have Daniel, to listen to that uh, with Michael Sheen. I have to yeah. listen to the one podcast I'll probably like more than mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> David Tennant. Anyway, yeah, no. Um, there are a lot of there's a lot more collaboration between these two in the series as well. I think, like, obviously in the book you have they are a double act, which is the whole point of the book. Um, yes. But you do kind of get this idea of like them being sort of long suffering, not colleagues or like very friendly acquaintances or sort of well they're friends but it's just like you know they're friends they band together but in this one they're like a total double act and i really love it um this like one moment in the book aziraphale so aziraphale when he helps anathema pick up her bike um says let there be light and and there is light (laughs) which is hilarious by the way uh (laughs) and in the book he immediately realizes that he's just done this thing and that people are staring at him and like he turns off the light sheepishly and in this one crowley just gives him this come on face and turns it off (laughs) we've talked about this (laughs) dear (laughs) honey you need to put the seed down again um yeah there's also you know, I told very... you to stop summoning heavenly lights in front <laughs> of our guests, dear. Um, there's also notably the bit where Crowley Sorry. miracles Aziraphale's jacket clean and Aziraphale, you know, like the bit where he gets shot with a paintball and Aziraphale's like, oh, no, I'll never yeah. be able to get this clean. And in the book, it just ends there. He's just like <laughs> sad about it. Yeah. And in the TV series, he gives, he gives Crowley this like, aww face. You know, like the emoji with the two sort of big eyes eyes um, yeah <laughs> most <laughs> and... emojis do have eyes <laughs> oh charles 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 um yeah but crowley cleans it up for him in the series which is just aw aw um <laughs> but then of course aziraphale comes back and says i'll always remember the stain was there no 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 but he'll only remember it when he does it himself that's why he needs crowley to do it for him and he's giving oh yes, yes. giving him the big puppy dog eyes um i mean that's so married though or at least very that, dating. As somebody who's not married, that is very married. It's true. It's true. I've got more examples here. We're going to skim over them. I think most notably, um, just the one where like Aziraphale and Crowley personally act as gardener and nanny for 11 years, as opposed to what's implied yeah. in the book to be like sending various people to do it for them. Much has been made possessed. Of... Yeah, exactly. Like, much has been made of Crowley's fabulous Mary Poppins cosplay, uh, but <laughs> I think my favourite thing about that is just that the, the implication that the two of them lived in basically the same house for ten years, mm. and presumably enjoyed it. Good for them. They, they, they did. They Good enjoyed being nannies. Yes. Do you want to mention the holy water? Uh, I don't actually remember how it's even introduced in the book. Not gonna lie. It's I read not. this weeks the, ago, not, and it was Christmas, and I was It's not there. He just has holy water he just has it okay cool that's why i was confused by it excellent (laughs) because in the series the holy water is actually gifted uh by aziraphale to crowley after hundreds and thousands of years of refusing to uh, which in itself is really cute because aziraphale cares about crowley i don't want to discorporate you with holy water i don't want to be responsible for that so it's, you know, they their partnership's a lot closer, I guess, is, is kind of the, the thing that we're going for here. Um, mm. I think on a less cute and more soul-destroyingly ah, note, in the <laughs> <Excellent>. same... <laughs> Thank My you. Uh, in the same vein as all of this, like, most of this is this great old couple dynamic, but I think it gets really real towards the end of the series. There's 
you know, the bit where Aziraphale gets discorporated, and in the book it's sort of played for yeah. comedy, like him coming back to Earth, and he's sort of like going through a bunch of different people and possessing them, trying to yeah. find his way back to England. And in the series, he like finds England basically immediately because he homes in on Crowley, and sort of yes. astral projects directly to him without seeming to have gone looking anywhere. It's like, oh, I know exactly where my the love of my life and my soulmate is. I can well, feel I him. <laughs> I'm just... I'm just overcome. <laughs> right? And then at the end of the series, they survive their respective trials by pretending to be each other. Yeah. Which they can do <laughs> because they know each other that well. Yeah. And how... At Armageddon, Aziraphale tells Crowley to do something, or he'll never talk to him again. Yeah. The best threat. It is amazing. Also, like, speaking of the bit where Aziraphale homes in on Crowley, you get the whole bit where Crowley's just drunk and crying and sitting in a pub. (laughs) And, like, he picked up the book from the bookstore without knowing anything about what it meant. He just needed a book from the bookshop. Like, he had to have one, even though the whole place was on fire. He was like, souvenir... I, you know, a piece of my best friend. I think, um, listeners, you will notice that we're just listing things now. Our apologies. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess it speaks to how much we love this relationship, but it's also kind of interesting that not a single thing that we just mentioned is in the book at all. Mm. Which, you know, goes to show the extent to which the, the love story for the ages is like a product of the adaptational process, which I think is very cool. Yes. It is beautiful. Yeah. To bring up a podcast that is not our own again. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. For any of you who don't know, David Tennant has this great podcast where he interviews actors, writers, etc. he's worked with over his career. Uh, it's the most wholesome thing ever. And if you're into writing, you need to go and listen to it. Writing, acting, whatever. Yeah. Uh, after exhausting Scribe to Screen, of course. <laughs> right. And on one episode, he chats with Michael Sheen just before the release of Good Omens. And Sheen says... This is the first double act I've ever done where it's just us two. Uh, we complement each other's personalities. Yeah. And I think you can gather it it, it shows mm-hmm. because they're absolutely loving every second of it. And I think it goes to show just without reading the book, I, I'm, I was kind of sullied by the fact that I'd seen trailers for the TV show before I had read the book. Right. But as I was reading, I could physically hear David Tennant's cadences. It's probably because I know him, his voice so well from like <laughs> Doctor Who and uh, Broadchurch and dramas like that. And I could just see him and Michael Sheen bantering with each other in my head They've kind of got like the perfect cadences and yeah. comic delivery for this kind of double act, if you know what I mean. The chemistry is incredible. It's it's really yeah, good. It just works. Yeah. So let's talk episode three. Woo! Woo! I um, see where the budget went. Do you want to give a bit of context for this? No. Okay. Fine. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Uh, this is probably the biggest departure from the novel. Yeah. In that, at the beginning of episode three. The action stops completely, so we can go back to a montage of, yeah, Crowley and Aziraphale's relationship throughout history. Mm. And it's wonderful. I'm not sure, I wasn't sure how I felt about stopping in the middle of the series to go back all that thousands of years and then playing the intro after, like, 30 minutes into the episode. It was 34 minutes long. 34 minutes long, <laughs> over half the runtime. Yep. But it does turn out to be relevant by the end of the episode because that's also where they have the breakup, the separation. Yeah. 
so yeah, that middle episode is just about their relationship. Yeah. It's it's the best episode in the whole series. It's like far and away the best episode. I don't <laughs> know if you'd agree, but you probably would. <laughs> um No, yeah, I kind of do. Yeah. And yeah. like, you know, again notably the best episode in the whole series because of all the bits that are not in the book at all. Even the breakups not in the book. They never have a fight. They just sort of don't see each other anymore. Nope. <laughs> Which, you know, it's kind of odd. Mm, yeah. You're wondering uh, where are they? <laughs> The bit the the standout for me is obviously which everyone talks about. Like first of all, the World War Two bit, which is amazing. I'm obsessed with the World War Two part. Me and the rest of Tumblr, and also like obviously the bit in I think it's the seventies, and Aziraphale gives Crowley the holy water yeah. after cutting him off for like a hundred years because he asked for it, and Crowley offers to drive him back yeah. home, and Aziraphale says, "You go too fast for me, Crowley." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah! They knew. they knew. Never mind Glee. Good Omens is the gayest show on television. <laughs> it is very gay. It's so good. Yes. Oh. And may I remind everyone that during that World War II scene, Crowley is constantly hopping from foot to foot because it takes place in a church and the consecrated ground burns his feet. So he's just skipping around the whole time oh. <laughs> in the middle of this Nazi interrogation. Oh my God, I love him. Yep. And this wouldn't be Neil Gaiman writing without a Shakespeare scene. Yeah. And I love the implication that it took a miracle to make Hamlet popular because, of course, it would. It's <laughs> there no, have been joking. a lot of there have been a lot of <laughs> theories about this, which I find really hilarious. Um, someone once pointed out that not only did Crowley make Hamlet popular, he also made it possibly the most popular play in the whole English language. <laughs> yeah. Which is... <laughs> Just gonna gonna well, go and impress my boyfriend by making Hamlet the most <laughs> well-loved play in the English language. And it was because of a demon. It's good. That makes me very happy. Yeah. Um. Speaking of this episode, the breakup scene at the end is just ah. Plus, it's follow-up in the next episode, uh... which is also not in the book, where Crowley comes back to apologize and get Aziraphale to run away with him, and they have a second breakup scene because Aziraphale says no. Yeah. Uh, and both of these things hurt me very much. <laughs> yeah. No, they had me close to tears. Yeah. Uh, have a nice doomsday. As Crowley <laughs> walks off, you know, still trying to keep his bravado and his apathetic wit. Oh. But yeah, crying behind those glasses the oh whole time. Oh my god. It hurts. It hurts. It um, hurts. I literally have... Why is it that the best parts of the story aren't even the book written in my notes? So that's my <laughs> profound statement about episode three. I remember these being in the book. <laughs> yeah, no, this is... I'm going to call a screenwriter alert here because mm. it's in that Verge interview that Gaiman says he was aware of the lack of A and C throughout yeah. the book because as he was flicking through his copy, he said picking up a copy of the book that's about 360 pages long and putting a post-it note in every 60 pages, that gives us six episodes. And then looking at each 60-page chunk, looking at episode three, going, that's weird. Crowley and Aziraphale aren't in this one. <laughs> Why don't I just do a sort of pre-credit sequence? Just the 6,000 years of human history where you get to find out where they got where they were. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Thanks, Neil. I mean, yes, thank you. I love but... how he says it like it's, you know, he's just going to throw in a quick pre-credit sequence and the credits come in at the 34-minute mark. Right, yeah. Just a quick <laughs> sequence. Yeah. 
five minutes because at most. He knows what the best thing about Good Omens as a property is. He absolutely does. <laughs> Um, I think my favorite thing about this episode, and honestly the whole TV series, is that it, like, not only is the relationship between Aziraphale and Crowley refigured as, like, an explicit love story, but the whole thing, like, the whole story is about their relationship. And it's, like, specifically a slow burn love story in which Crowley pursues Aziraphale through the ages and is constantly rebuffed because poor Aziraphale is all caught up in his own (laughs) issues, um, which we'll get to later. Like, the whole 6,000... Yeah. I mean, the whole 6,000 years of human history isn't just, like, the two of them developing a relationship. It is literally just Crowley trying to make advances towards Aziraphale. Like, both sort of friendly and or romantic ones. And him just, like, Aziraphale just being, like, one interaction behind in every instance. Mm. And all of their fights are about Crowley going too fast. Like, the bit where he yells, we're on our side, and Aziraphale yells, there is no our side, is absolutely just... the. The ultimate expression of this, and also <laughs> screams. Screams. Um, and I do like, I think it's very notable that the series ends with the two of them dining at the Ritz and the bird singing in Berkeley Square. Um, as opposed yep. to the thing with Adam, like, slouching hopefully towards Tadfield forever. Because the most yep. important thing about the story is obviously the love story and not, you know, the world not ending. Adam, who? 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 Oops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, the the show's ending also made me cry. <laughs> yeah, to the world. Yep. <laughs> Speaking of things that cry, let's talk about how this series <laughs> makes Aziraphale and Crowley nicer people who cry more. Big angels don't cry. Yes, they do. They are soft. <laughs> I'm soft might be my like one of my favorite lines in the whole piece. I just love that very yes. much. Yes, I'm soft. <laughs> Um, no, but I think I think that this development of their relationship actually says a lot about why the individual characterization is like that. Because, like, you can kind of tell that Aziraphale mm. and Crowley are being framed as romantic leads just by looking at the way that their personalities change. Not a lot, but, you know, some. Right. Yeah. Some. Yes, so, in the book, uh, well, and in the series as well, they quote this line many people meeting Aziraphale for the first time formed three impressions that he was English that he was intelligent and that he was gayer than a tree full of monkeys on nitrous oxide (laughs) I do love that quote Uh... (laughs) it's a good quote (laughs) yeah I mean I you know I don't think it doesn't apply to the tv version of Aziraphale but I will say that that's definitely not the first impression that you get off him like, I mean, granted, we do see yeah. a lot more of him than his public persona, but I feel like looking at him, the top three impressions you get are not he's intelligent, he's English, and he's very gay. I mean, maybe the third one. <laughs> <laughs> he's just soft, maybe. though. I love that a lot. Um, Book Aziraphale is often kind of smug and like self-righteous in a way. Not in, not in a way that's that off-putting, but like, it feels like that's the case. And Sheen plays yeah. him a lot less smug and a lot more blundering and, like, anxious. He's just anxious all the time. Uh, <laughs> and he wiggles, which is new and, and adorable. <laughs> yeah, no, those those mannerisms do really add a lot to the character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah, they do make him an entirely separate thing. He's so much yep. softer. I love that. You do get the sense, like, you get the sense that Book Aziraphale does things that are good because he's an angel and he, like that's his job and it's also kind of a habit 
Whereas, like, yeah, in the it's series... his natural instinct. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just sort of natural to him. Whereas, like, obviously in the series, Aziraphale is also naturally quite sweetness and light. But he's just also, like, constantly anxious about making everyone around him happy. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I like this. Gotta um, keep head office happy. Yeah, no. I think they also lean in really hard on him and his sensual pleasures. The book tells us that Aziraphale likes food, but it's not really emphasized very much. In fact, like... Crowley talking about the restaurants and stuff is mixed in with him being like, oh, the sound of music and, and silver snuff boxes. <laughs> These are a few of my favourite <laughs> things. things. Um, whereas in the TV series, like, we first meet him, I mean, we first meet him in the modern day eating a plate of sushi. And, like, when Crowley has to convince <laughs> him that he wants to stay on Earth and he's like, you know, there won't be Earth things anymore, he says music, bookshops, mm. and then just, like, a whole list of food items. Yeah, oh. I mean that would work for me. Yeah, same. <laughs> He's got us there. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who goes to Paris during the French Revolution just so he can buy crepes. Oh, he's such an idiot. <laughs> I think you can see where we're going with this. You didn't like, get the memo, okay? Yeah, right. Um, I love how they lean in basically on the idea that Aziraphale is sort of hedonistic, and especially on his food thing, because like loving food is so fleshy and material and like physical in a way that is really mm. very, very softening for his personality. I think it also, yeah. like, takes the edge off his class stuff because he's clearly coded as, like, extremely posh in the book. And in the TV series, he's like, yes, he is extremely posh. He dresses in fancy clothes and, like, mm. eats expensive food. But the the sheer delight that he takes in all of it all the time makes you feel that, like, he's not, he's not so much a snob as he's just this oblivious dude who, like, rich people have nicer food. And rich people have nicer clothes, and that's why he dresses and eats like a rich person. It has nothing to do with any kind of class consciousness, which he obviously doesn't have. Yeah, and it kind of sells me on the whole, you know, Aziraphale is in love with Earth, because yeah. why wouldn't you be if you came and ate all of these foods? <laughs> it's yeah. one of the better things about life. Exactly. If you are a foodie. If you were, you know, if you had infinite money and, like, no full-time job. <laughs> and you spent all your time Wait, just that's sort me. Of chilling just around the money lol you spend all your time just sort of eating through six thousand years of human history i think you love you know i love earth too uh yeah <laughs> it's and the one I... thing keeping me on this rock <laughs> <laughs> i mean <laughs> yes but like aside from all of this like all the softening of his character in terms of making him a hedonist and making him a total himbo which is he is though <laughs> um, I think the most notable change is that Aziraphale becomes a lot more vulnerable in, in the show. Um, mostly emotionally, but like he's, yeah, he gets bullied by Gabriel and the other angels, and he also just keeps blundering into damsel distress situations. A lot of people on Tumblr seem to think that this <laughs> is on purpose. Happen. I would not be surprised if that was the case. You know, it kind of makes him soft, but it also sort of gestures at his role as a romantic lead, because he's the, the passive one, like he's the one who's getting pursued all the time. And you kind of understand why Crowley would want to pursue this guy because he's like, not particularly. He has the he has the personality of a lemon meringue. Uh... <laughs> it's a very nice lemon meringue. <laughs> yes, I don't mean that as an With insult. Like he just, he's a cloud. <laughs> we love he's him. A <laughs> yeah. Yep, he's definitely worth fighting for. He is. IMO. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the other guy? The guy downstairs? Ooh, him? Yeah. Uh... Him. <laughs> Doctor Who. Well, Crowley's played by David Tennant, and that's all I have to say <laughs> about that. Uh... 
<laughs> Moving on. <laughs> no, um, no, no, I love... I think Crowley gets the exact opposite treatment, and this is really... Once I started thinking of them in terms of romantic lead, sort of, you know, imagine your OTP kind of situations, it became really obvious why everyone on Tumblr ships the two of them as hard as they do. Because, like, Aziraphale is the, is the embodiment of the, like, infinitely desirable, kind of stupid, needs, like, a whack around the head object of desire. And Crowley is, and like... Crowley is the whack. <laughs> yeah! He's sad, and he <laughs> cries, and he, like, this is yet another one of David Tennant standing in the rain with tears streaming down his face rolls. Yes! Despite yeah, the why fact does he do he... it so well? Yeah. This is typecasting at this point. I mean, despite the fact that he never does this in Good Omens, you, like... He he perpetually he perpetually projects that one Doctor Who gif of David Tennant standing in the rain with tears streaming down his face. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like speaking of being the butt of office jokes, Crowley suddenly has no respect from his colleagues. There's the bit where he like mm. in the book. There's a bit where he sends user agreements to hell with a memo that says "Learn, guys," which kind of in, like you know it suggests a level of cockiness about his work that he so does not have. In the TV series, yeah. I mean, dear dear Crowley and his, can I hear a wahoo? No, <laughs> you cannot hear a wahoo. No, nobody's Wahoo's wahooing denied. for you. <laughs> um, no, but get like back I... on the surface. <laughs> oh no. I mean, like also aside from just his sort of terrible time with his job, which is shared between the two of them, there's also like just so much more angst going on with him. I think, like, the bit that really got me was the bit where he, like, during the scene where Aziraphale calls him nice for equipping people with machine guns, but making it sure that no one would be actually killed. Yes, Crowley, that's very nice of you. Right, right. In the book, his response is just, oh, tell the whole blessed world, why don't you? Uh, (laughs) Whereas in the TV series, he, like, slams Aziraphale (laughs) against the wall and screams, Charles, you want to do this one? Go for it. I'm not nice. Nice <laughs> is a four-letter word. <laughs> yeah, he basically yeah. loses his. Shit. <laughs> um, you know, and I think it's really telling in terms of like the different levels of comfort he has between the book and the series in his own niceness and like by extension his own character. You know, he's a lot more settled in the book. He's very like, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. I kind of like it. And in the TV series, he's just sad all the time. Yeah. He doesn't like himself. He probably dislikes everyone else more, except for Aziraphale. <laughs> like, I'm one of the best people in the world, and I suck, so... Yep. Is kind of his vibe. Um, yeah, and he's also... He's got a lot of angst surrounding being a demon, which I think is really... It's weird that the book didn't get into that, because you'd think that someone who, like, fell from heaven and suffered eternal damnation would probably have more feelings about it. Right, and who wants to stop Armageddon? <laughs> Yeah, um, but he like doesn't seem to be that affected by it in the book. Whereas in the series, he's just sad about it all the time, and like he obviously takes yeah. it very personally. There are these bits in the book that are quite cute bits of prose. In the character descriptions, you know, you have Crowley, a demon, like an angel who did not so much fall as saunter vaguely downwards. And yeah. in there's a bit also where they go. He didn't mean to fall, he just hung around with the wrong people. Which are both kind of funny jokes. But then in the series, Crowley mm. says those things in first person, and suddenly they're not funny anymore. It's not funny at all. No. Yeah, yeah. And of course, when you're reading Saunter Vaguely Downwards, you can kind of take that as, you know, owning it completely. Yeah. You can saunter coolly. Yeah, you can. But yeah, said in the series, they're just not 
he's not owning it at all. It's just uh, sad. Especially not after he's lost a zero fail and he's drinking in the pub and he's just <laughs> he's just drunkenly talking to himself. Everybody around him thinks he's a complete nutter because he's just saying things like, Oh, here's Lucifer and the guys. Next thing I know, I'm doing a free dive into a pool of boiling sulfur. And the barman must at this point must be like, <laughs> uh, I think you've had one too many mates. Yeah. Oh. It's it's a whole mood. It is a whole mood. It's you know, like there's a whole there's a whole bit where Crowley yells at God and he like is complete with the, the other David Tennant signature hanging uncomfortably off various pieces of furniture. Yes! The furniture <laughs> thing as well. Oh I love See, it. See we know the motifs. We've got it. David Tennant clinging to the to a chair and like throwing himself dramatically off it while staring at the ceiling yeah. with his giant eyes and and crying. Yeah. It's it's a lot. Um, which is not in the book at all, obviously. And there's also like, in the... <laughs> yeah. David Tennant flings back from his chair <laughs> and stares at the ceiling, gaping eyes, and screams, "Why?" Yeah. Um, and also, I think like the plant thing has been talked about a lot as well. So in the in the book, there's a running gag where Crowley like absolutely terrifies his house plants by yelling at them and like picking out the weakest and disposing of it in the back. Um, although notably, we are never told what he does with the plant. It's implied that he kills mm. it. Thanks, Crowley. This is this is a joke in the book. Like, it's really funny. Um, and in the series, he's it's not funny either. He's, like, yelling at the plants. He's really berating them. It's not, it's not cool. It's not cute. It's very, very sad. Um, and there are a lot of methods on Tumblr yeah, about how... It's, I'm not nice energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, in the book, you get, like, Crowley, he's sort of just negging his plans. Like, that's his whole, his whole deal. Um, whereas in <laughs> the TV do. series... All those plant yeah. mums out there will know. Oh, yeah. Uh, whereas TV series Crowley, like, is, <laughs> seems genuinely angry and upset with his plans. And people have written about how, obviously, this is just him displacing his trauma from falling uh, onto being hypercritical towards his plans. You know, like, how else do you read him glaring at a pot plant and screaming, You disappointed me! <laughs> That's not related to anything in your life, of course, Crowley. Like, you don't have any unresolved trauma. Nope. Nope. Nothing to do with gardens at all. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I love how this one throwaway gag in the book is just sort of made into this huge thing about his character. And how he feels about himself and how he feels about God and his place in the universe. It's just a lot. Um, also, incidentally... It makes his big finale where he like drives through Hellfire to get to Tadfield really hit different because you know they both have the same line like mm. if you're gonna go you're gonna do it with style, um, but in the book Crowley has style the whole way through so you're like okay he's gonna do it with style whereas in the series he's just like such a loser this entire time I mean he looks great but he's you know not <laughs> particularly yeah, stylish yeah he just looks like he's from the sixties yeah. Yeah, um, but or, mostly in terms of his I don't personality. Know, some weird like, punk version of the 60s. <laughs> I mean, he looks very stylish, but his whole life is a shambles. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, so when he gets in his like car, and he's like, oh no. <laughs> and, you know, okay, so Charles, if you ever get in a burning car and go, if you're gonna go, do it with style, that will hit different. It, it will. will. Sure hit different. I'm making notes, don't you worry. <laughs> also, in the book, I can't remember, so remind me. Yes. Is Haster in the car with Crowley as he drives he into not. Hellfire? I had that in my notes cool. as well, actually. Yeah. Cool. That's one thing I noted. Uh, and that makes it all the sweeter as exactly. well. Exactly. 
I don't see why we have to discorporate Hasta twice within five minutes of each other, but it's because hey, Hasta I'm all sucks, for it. Charles. He does <laughs> suck. He physically sucks the life out of humans. Yeah. So, you know, he gets it's a much bigger moment of triumph for him because of how beaten down he's been until this point, basically. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, basically, you know, just Crowley goes from being this fake, cool, semi-competent, funny demon guy to, like, a charmingly lame, tormented romantic lead. It's, it's, it's a lot. And I love it. It's great. It's great. We're all here for it. Um, and, you know, this is especially since, like, his slow burn courtship of Aziraphale is also obviously both of them working through their baggage about God, which, you know, is oh, not a theme is. that I care about at all. Uh, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Why would you Speaking think of which, <laughs> a section entitled "Man, I Hate Mondays and Eternal Damnation." <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking at the time, and like Neil Gaiman writing episode three of Good Omens, we've spent nearly <laughs> thirty minutes just talking about Aziraphale and Crowley. Right. I wonder why that. And now could here's be. the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> And here's the intro. Play the intro music here. I've suddenly forgotten it and it's been replaced by the Sherlock theme. Sorry. Oh, don't worry. You're going to edit it in there. I hate you. Uh, so, <laughs> Man, I Hate Mondays and Eternal Damnation. Yep. Two trends I noticed about the portrayal of the angel and demons is, one, there seem to be more jokes and the visual gags support this about jobs, work, head mm. office, memos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And two, there's a lot of effort put into making the angels appear just as sinister as the demons do, which right. I don't remember from the novel. Yeah. It turns out that this, in another annoying research revelation, was also <laughs> intentional. Uh, Gaiman states in that Verge interview again, okay, we need angels in here to balance everything out. We need a few more. We've got a couple of demons. And at this point, I was like, Okay, let's see heaven, let's see hell, yeah. and boy do we. We do. Uh, and he also talks about how he created the character of Gabriel and was just like, we need to make a really brutal... He's <laughs> really just the worst. Gabriel is the douchebag. worst. Douchebag. Yep. But yeah, from the book, I was getting the impression that the angels were less evil corporation, mm. Apple headquarters, and more just <laughs> stuck up their ass orderly. Yeah. But yeah, it does kind of even up the stakes between Crowley and Aziraphale and push mm. them together. Whereas in the book, it only feels like Crowley is under any kind of existential threat because demons are brutal by right. nature. Uh, I guess the portrayals of the demons and angels ended up being a bit more farcical on screen than what I got from the book. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's definitely more extreme. Like, there's a there's a bit in the book that's just like... Yes, some demons were really terrible, and actually so were some angels, but on the whole, everyone mm. had a job to do, and they just did it. Yeah. And Hasta and Liga, who are the two demons that we see, are both terrible, but like it explicitly says that those are just two bad apples, and like everyone else is just sort of doing their job. Which is really not the vibe that you get from either heaven or hell in the in the series. No, yeah, they're really I sinister. Mean, they're really not like that. Like In the book, we get the feeling that heaven and hell are antagonistic because they're just in the way. Like They're like a problem. You know, these are like mm. the sort of corporate bureaucratic idiots who are so up themselves that they can't, they have no sense of perspective anymore. Like they're more interested in doing what corporate tells them to do than yeah. literally any other thing. You know, they're not malicious, yeah. they're just stupid. They're like, you totally know, like mindless. the actual, like actual god 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listening to actual God. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's like a heavy implication in the book that Aziraphale and Crowley learned free will and like the ability to make choice from humans. And that like the main issue mm. with both angels and demons is the fact that neither of them have imagination or like interest in logic or interest in literally anything other than just doing what they think they ought to be doing. It's total apathy. Right. Whereas, like, in the series, Heaven and Hell definitely make choices. They have, like, feelings and motivations, and most of those things are just bad. They're horrible people. Yep, yep. we enjoy taking the mick out of people. Yeah. And making them scared. Yeah. We relish it. <laughs> yeah, Gabriel is just this toxic douchebag boss who jogs mm. around the park to get fit for Armageddon <laughs> but while making sure to tell Aziraphale to lose the guts. Oh my god. You know. Don't you dare tell me to exercise. That that hit some really dark places in my psyche. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, and then the, later, the angels gang up on Aziraphale in an alleyway and punch him in that same gut as a threat. Oh. And then, of course, they make good on their threats by kidnapping him in the finale. Yeah. So yeah. they mean business. No, literally, they're all wearing suits. <laughs> they look good. They are evil. Capitalism. Woo! Yeah, no, Tumblr has, like, a lot of analysis pieces about this, obviously, again. Uh, <laughs> and, like, about how, how awfully emotionally abusive, basically, the angel's treatment of Aziraphale is. I mean, you mentioned being punched in the gut, so, like, obviously they do get physically abusive as well. But a lot of the interactions between Aziraphale and the other angels are just, like, them mocking him, or deriding mm. him, or threatening him in, him in his own home. There's, like, the, the bit where Gabriel and Sandalfin both go into Aziraphale's back room... They just sort of walk in on him unannounced and then Sandalfin blocks the exit mm. while, like, they intimidate him from both sides. And there's also, like, the constant verbal derision. Like, there's a bit where Aziraphale gets called a pathetic excuse for an angel, which is, you know, not good workplace language and he should totally report to HR. <laughs> yes, I'm taking this up with HR. And the fact that they bring up Aziraphale losing the flaming sword a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a phallus, guys. Do you get it? <laughs> And I guess all of this is leading up to that extended ending. Yeah. You know, the first half of the episode is Armageddon. You know, who cares about that? We'll sweep that under the rug. But most of it, the very beginning and the second half, is spent on the trials of Crowley and Aziraphale. Yeah. For betraying their natures. Exactly. Like, it's, it's, it's really notable not just because it sort of puts the emphasis squarely where it belongs um, in terms of the stories, but it also, like, yeah. it extends the cruelty of heaven and hell and demonstrates how they're both an existential threat to our heroes, but also, like, despite their similar... Like, it's sort of a similarity and difference kind of thing. It's like, oh, heaven and hell are both equally horrible. But it's also yeah. a demonstration of how different their approaches are because, like, in hell, everyone's just really happy. They, like, want to see Crowley suffer and die. They get really excited about it. They're like, yeah, spectacle, super yeah. exciting. Um, Heaven is not like that. They go in for, like this final emotional jab more than anything else, you know? There's only three witnesses and that they don't seem to be, like, cheering about it. But the line... Gabriel was just smirking yeah, the whole time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, like, you know, who... Gabriel says to his subordinate, and I quote, shut your stupid mouth and die already, which, once again, is not good workplace language, and if people <laughs> speak to you that way, you should definitely call HR. Ah, truly the words of an angel. I'm the archangel f Gabriel <laughs> great fabulous yeah. again triggered some of my workplace memories oh my god I thankfully mean, none of mine love you to my colleagues <laughs> um 
Yeah, no, I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by how carefully differentiated the approaches between heaven and hell are, because, like, I don't know, I find this really interesting. Like, in the book, they kind of make a point of of emphasizing how angels and demons are basically the same. Their wings are the same color. There's this line, um, the hosts of heaven and hell stood wingtip to wingtip. If you looked really closely and had been specially trained, you could tell the difference. Yeah. I.e., you probably couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> Um, but here there is an obvious difference, you know, hell is all about the brute force and the brutality, and heaven is a lot more subtle and focused on sort of mental abuse, like gaslighting, insults, making you feel like the bad guy. In in yeah. in many ways, they're a lot worse. And you get, like, hell has the threat of death, but heaven has the threat of rejection. Because, obviously, for both of them, falling is the worst possible thing that can happen to you. And in a way, hell is less terrible than heaven, because everyone has already suffered the worst possible thing. Right. I think also, you know, it these portrayals exist because ultimately the series is a lot more focused on relationships with God as being like, you know, a thing that matters to people. Really? Oh, tell me more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Weird concept, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, we've mentioned... Is it like... part of the podcast where I zone out and can Oh my god, I'm off? sorry. Uh, you know, okay, fine. We, we talked at length about how Crowley feels bad about being a demon, so I won't get back into that, but I must just, you know, the bits where he, like, Crowley helped make that nebula once. Crowley still talks hmm. to God. That that really stabbed me in the gut. You know, he's like a demon. He's praying. It's, it's like a whole thing. Like, wow, man. You still talk to God. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a... That's a thing. Yeah, I mean, their relationship is like... Maybe God, Crowley and God are on the outs, but they're not not speaking to each other. Like it's it's a lot more fraught than that. And Aziraphale, mm. meanwhile, has this constant anxiety about like not being good enough for God through the guise of not being good enough for heaven. And his responses to the angels' verbal abuse or like any suggestion that he might be doing something wrong, they're not like, oh, am I gonna get punished? I mean, they are. Am I gonna get punished? But like obviously, what he's thinking about is not getting in trouble. He's thinking about, am I a good person? Am I acceptable in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, yeah, is what heaven tells me about God really true? Yeah. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I mean, Am like, I good you got... enough. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is coupled with his growing doubt about God being good enough for him, his refusal to believe Crowley's actually true claims that heaven won't help them, and, you know, him pushing against the Metatron, which is not in the book at all. Mm. Like, Aziraphale meets the Metatron, and the Metatron's just like, yeah, we're not going to help you. And Aziraphale's like, fine, I'll do it myself, bitch. <laughs> Bye. Um, <laughs> and in the, in the TV series, he, like, keeps pushing back, he's like, I'd like to speak to God. You know, you're not God, could I please speak yeah, to God? Um, and I think it sort of, first of all, speaks really to Aziraphale's interest in talking to God, like, as a person, not just as a bureaucratic authority. You know, whereas, whereas in the book, it's obvious that he's trying to talk to God so that he can get something done. In the TV series, it's like, he it, it matters to him whether God uh, believes the same thing he believes, you know even if the rest of heaven doesn't. Like, he has to know that he's right. Yeah. I project onto this boy a lot, can you tell? <laughs> and here I thought you loved all the fire and brimstone, hierarchy of angels, <laughs> paraphernalia, red tape surrounding God. I mean, I don't understand why, considering that it's not in the least bit relevant to my life at all, but, like, the story of this very <laughs> soft, hedonistic, food-loving, book-loving person who, like, is trying to reconsider his relationship with God when all the other people who claim to represent God are emotionally abusive, intolerant assholes who love to bring mm. about the end of the world. I mean, like, that really speaks to me for some reason. I just cannot put my finger on it. Yep. And feeling rejected all the time makes me feel <laughs> like a demon. 
Not that you can relate to that at all. No, the the fan art is drawing itself. Oh my goodness! I, I'm already starting. Don't worry. Oh no! I mean, I guess you know. I love this so much. If it's not obvious, like I love this whole storyline, and I don't know, like the book is not particularly interested in anyone's relationship with God. God is actually notoriously absent, and like that's kind of part of the point. Like the fact that we never see God is a yeah. plot point. But in the series, like Crowley and Aziraphale's relationships with God are the heart of the character arcs, since their relationship with the concept of God's approval and like how it's mediated through heaven and hell stands in for and also evolves yeah, yeah. in parallel to like their ability to accept themselves and reject their toxic clans and love each other. It's the whole plot, really. Yeah, how we even get around this small issue of Armageddon that we've apparently been made to carry out. Yeah. yeah. It all comes back to like their concepts of themselves and their place in the universe and their relationship with God. And I, I you know, into that for some reason. I don't know. Uh, you know, I think this is also one of the reasons why the narrator has to be the voice of God, because, like, the book is fully ambivalent about whether or not God agrees with our leads, or even notices that this is going on. Mm. But the series cannot do that, because does God approve is a central dramatic question, so if the answer is, eh, <laughs> then that's, like, you know, actually kind of viscerally horrifying, really. Yeah. 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 And speaking of the voice of God... <laughs> the voice of God. Um... Yeah, I mean, like, obviously, the other main reason the narrator is literally God is that <laughs> the, the original series as voice of is God. ridiculously precious about the contents of the book. It just keeps so much narration, and it's like, mm. not only is the narrator great, the narrator is God of the text. I'm like, okay. Yeah. By the way, this section is otherwise known as when adaptations are too faithful, if you hadn't already guessed. Yep, when... <laughs> When you make the original source text the word of God. Yeah. Yep. I'll say now that I generally hate narration in book-to-film TV adaptations. Uh, yeah. I give this one a bit of a pass because it does place God outside the realms of heaven and hell as the ineffable comic chess player. Yeah. Uh, but, Kim, you've already said way too much about how yeah, that sorry. complicates our leads' relationships with God. And I'm not going to start you on that tangent again. My so. apologies. I mean, like... You know, it's it's <laughs> helpful thematically, but it obviously becomes quite a big problem with the actual dramatic mm. execution of, of the TV series. Um, yeah. Because the series seems unable to decide whether it's a visual medium or prose. Which, um, and the actually not being able to decide is kind of the big problem because it results in it showing and telling at the same time, which is somehow a lot worse than just mm. telling and not showing. Uh, I think the most egregious example is right at the end where, like, the joke is... Two angels dined at the Ritz, and a nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. And how we get to this point is first you hear the, the score of the song from which that lyric comes, playing yeah. wordlessly in the background. Then we see the two angels. Then God says, there were angels dining at the Ritz, and a nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. And then mm. we hear the lyrics, there were angels dining at the Ritz, and a nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. <laughs> and as we fade as we fade out of the series thinking, okay, finally we're done, we see the nightingale. <laughs> you might not have been know. able to see it, but it was definitely there. <laughs> Although how you could not see it, I really have no idea. Uh, <laughs> it's a quote why? from the book. Why do this? Yep. Another instance where Gaiman is faithful to the book to a fault. Uh, and I don't want to get into dodgy territory with this one. I just want to point out that Good Omens has a lot of characters. It does. 
And when reading the book, I was having trouble following who was going to become a mainstay character and who was just going to be a little comic vignette, you know, like the captain on the ship that gets destroyed by yeah. a kraken. Just those one-time things. Yeah. And in that sense, I am thankful for having the narration and then maybe a montage of what's happening, especially with the child switching scene at the beginning. They represent it using like a sleight of hand. They take the sleight of hand card trick motif from the book and use that. So it was helpful there. Mm-hmm. In terms of actual character development and arcs, uh, there's a quote from Gaiman, again, in that interview, where he states his intention to humanize and add depth to some of the human characters. He says, I will make you fall in love even more with Sergeant Shadwell. I will make you fall even more in love with Newt than you thought you could, I hope. Uh... Sorry, Neil. Uh... I don't know what to say. Uh, I still stand A and C above all of these. It's true. I mean, I agree <laughs> that Shadwell and, and Newt come across... They're portrayed in a likeable way. Yeah, more likeable than the book. Um, I think the whole Witchfinder situation is genuinely a problem in both the book and the TV series, and I wish they'd cut it out, like, 30 years <laughs> after the fact. I wonder um, why. Like, it's super uncomfortable. You know, I like Newt as a person, and in the show he goes from, like, fine to genuinely quite charming. But, like, you know... Shadwell is basically a crazy alt-right troll who is trying to kill a minority group. I mean, granted, witches are not the same as, like, illegal immigrants or queer people, but that's obviously what the allegory is, though, right? Like, he hates a group of people. He blames them for everything. He wants to go and ferret them out and murder them. (laughs) And, like, you know, it's just... I... That's meant to be sympathetic? Wow. What makes us sympathetic to him is that he asks people how many nipples they have on the regular. Now that's, yeah, that's a guy so I can get relatable. behind. I, d- <laughs> I, mean, I think it's <laughs> even worse with Newton actually because Shadwell's like obviously you know you get this idea of this person who's like good at heart but has gotten lost in a mire of their own beliefs which is something mm. that means slightly less to me now that fascists are literally marching on the capital in Washington DC but I can yeah I can get behind uh... that. What, what I cannot get behind is I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase here. Newt says, "Oh lol, I don't believe any of that stuff. I just hang out with the guy and spend my spare time helping him substantiate his conspiracy theories. And I laugh uncomfortably as he calls his neighbor a whore. And I carry a letter of commission from his imaginary genocidal army in my purse. Hi, I'm Newt. And Anathema, a literal a literal witch, goes, "Oh, cool. Let's have sex." <laughs> it was written. <laughs> It must happen. And, like, I think, you know, the series tries to sort of turn this into a cute... Like, there's there's a line that's added for the TV series where Anathema goes, you're a pretty good witch finder, you found me. And it's sort of like, oh, he's changed his beliefs because now he's got a witch girlfriend and he was never evil to be. And I'm just like, no. No, man. Like... <laughs> you know they say that line, they use that joke twice in five minutes, right? I know. I mean, it's meant to be Because they do cute. it for Shadwell as well. Yeah, look, it's meant to be cute, and I get it. But I honestly think that short of, like, making a whole plotline in the story, a redemption arc for Newt and Shadwell, where they literally see the error of their ways, the best thing to be done with this storyline is just to get rid of it. Because, like, no. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. At least they're kind of funny. Ha ha. I find (laughs) it kind of funny. I find it kind of sad. You know what else is funny? The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Hey. Uh, 
I don't like them in no. this show. Uh, I don't really like them in the book either, to be honest, but... Yeah. Yeah, here we are. Uh, in the show, they have some nice visual humour, but every time they open their mouths, I can't help but burst into laughter, and not for the right <laughs> reasons. Yeah. Uh, granted, I'm not sure there is a way that you can play four horsemen of the apocalypse, but on motorbikes, and in the 21st century with a straight face. Yeah. But... It was really hammy for me. I think yeah, especially yeah, yeah. War as well is like, <laughs> it, she's just really off-putting. I think her delivery is not very good, with, like, it's true. The delivery is not on point. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a fan. Yeah. Like, I quite like them in the book, Um, but they're obviously the least interesting or important part of the main storyline in the book. And I don't understand why we spent so much time on mm. them. I mean, I think we should note that while we spent basically this whole episode up to this point talking about Xerophil and Crowley... They make up like 60% of the total screen time. And it's just... Yeah. 60% is generous. It could even be like half. Why? Why? I mean, it's kind of... Th- that, <laughs> you know, that is more or less the balance in the book. It's true. But the development that Gaiman gives to Xerophil and Crowley like, makes it really obvious that he knows that they're the most interesting characters in the story. And they have the best storylines. And it, it is their story. But then he completely refused to cut anything out to make room for it. You know... Mm. And it's not like I'm upset because the two of them didn't have enough time to develop that plotline. Like, they had six episodes, it's fine. But you get really weird mixed messages when you, like, give one of your three to six storylines a ton of development and complexity. And, like, at the same time, it has about the same amount of screen time as everything else, despite the fact that everything else is more boring. Yep, and quadruple the number of characters. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yikes. I think while we're complaining about this, we should probably also point out that part of the reason this happened was probably because Terry Pratchett died uh, right before the series went into production. Mm. In fact, I think Gaiman's production of the series was motivated by Pratchett's death because one of the things the two of them wanted to do together was oversee an adaptation of Good Omens. And it was like Terry Pratchett's dying wish to have it done. Yeah, in the interview, Gaiman says that he attended Pratchett's funeral and then literally the night he got back home he started writing episode one. Oh lord so yeah very personally motivated yeah okay so um ignore everything we just said <laughs> <laughs> i mean don't ignore it but yeah that does yeah it, i understand <laughs> yeah yeah i mean like i you know i stand by that as uh as a critic who watched the show but like if I co-wrote something with my best friend and then they died and I made an adaptation, I don't think I changed very much either. Right, yeah. Just putting it out there, yeah. And before we stew too long in our criticisms, uh, I do want to add that there are character moments, characters who are not Aziraphale or Crowley, that do yeah. <laughs> some good character moments. Yeah. Uh, when the Hellhound first sees Adam, for starters, they should have kept that CGI dog on the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah, because, no, I agree. Wow. What the hell? They could have cut around it. Yep, they could have just first person, not even shown the dog, in the bushes. Mm. Whatever. That's that's behind me. I've got over it. <laughs> but the moment where Dog actually runs up to Adam in slow-mo with these violins in the background, yeah. like it's some kind of scene from Lassie, oh. that really got me. I was laughing in tears. Yeah. Uh, as did Adam giving his friends the power to literally end war, famine, and pollution. It's nice with a capital N. And accurate. Uh, Not nice in in that sense, though. 
Yeah, it is nice. It is just nice. But yeah, on the whole, maybe they could have got some better child actors. Maybe. Uh, I thought that some of the faithfulness gags were quite charming. Like, the out-of-context queen was adorable. (laughs) I really liked that. (laughs) You're my best friend, playing as Crowley races to Aziraphale's bookshop, and it finds it in flames. Beautiful. I'm more partial to another one bites the dust as he, like, his car catches fire. (laughs) How many of those specific references were actually from the book? Oh, because I don't remember that many songs being. No, basically none of them. You just mentioned that it's Queen. Yes. So that's cute. Yeah, yeah, that's Um, what I thought. I know they definitely quote Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, yeah, right in the beginning. Yeah, reference the other ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I did also genuinely love the bit where Adam gives up his whole, like, Antichrist situation. Um, in the book, it's just sort of a small moment. Like, it's not a small moment, it's very significant, obviously, but it doesn't feel emotionally significant. Um, in the TV series, it comes at this, at the end of this really gorgeous and heart-rending scene where his friends, like, turn on him, and he obviously is very upset about this, even though he's still, like, you know, glowing eyes, spawn of Satan. (laughs) Cute. (laughs) <laughs> but then Dog runs away from him as well. And him, like, chasing after them, screaming, give me back my dog, is, like, very... It's it's so childhood heartbreak, you know? It's really sad. Um, and at that moment when he, story. like... There's this beautiful little montage of all the things that have led up to this point, like, all the parts of his life and the things that he's done and the ways that his life could have gone. And then he's screaming this wail of sadness while he becomes a normal boy again. It's just like, oh. I actually welled up. Like, I was watching it, and I got teary. It was, it was a lot. Yeah, no, no, I get that. I, I don't think uh, the child actors, I don't think any of the actors are too bad yeah. showing powerful emotions. It's just, yeah, it's mostly the first few episode banter that yeah, falls I think they flat were warming in places. Up. Yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. I'm also a big fan of the conclusion of the Apocalypse storyline. Like, the, there's this beautiful bit where the plot lines finally intersect <laughs> and Aziraphale and Crowley help Adam out. Um, and are actually involved in the actual plot for once, guys. Hooray! <laughs> Book version. I'm looking at you. Uh, but there's like a lot of there's a lot, a lot of love in. I know you mentioned Charles like Crawley stopping time because Aziraphale threatened never to speak to him again, which like, hmm, yeah. wow. Uh, but also Aziraphale saying <laughs> to to Adam, whatever you do, we're beside you, is just such a beautiful moment. Even though they've never met, I'm like, that's really, yeah, really we've great. been watching over you for years. We've been trying to. Yeah. <laughs> we thought we were. <laughs> um, yeah, and also the way they land on a theme for the resolution of the storyline. Like, yes, guys, we do have themes now. Oh, no. Yeah. No, I no, don't go know. on. Say your bit. Say your bit. Okay. So, like, in the book, the plot ends because Aziraphale and Crowley catch heaven and hell on a bureaucratic technicality, basically. They're like, how do you know that this is the ineffable plan? You don't know what God wants, so you can't do what corporate tells you because corporate's not telling you anything. Leave us alone. And the two, like, <laughs> heaven and hell are like, okay, fine. Like, we don't like this, but whatever. And they just disappear. Mm. Which, okay. <laughs> In the series, this still happens, but, like, the real end of the world comes to an end. by With Adam, like, literally defeating Satan. Haha. By deciding that his <laughs> real father is the dead who was there. And, you know, I I appreciate how it trades in, like, this dry, <sighs> deliberately pointless humour of the book for a genuinely impactful message about chosen family and the power of love. Uh, okay, I would much rather have, yeah, the impactful emotional message, and that's very much the trend that this adaptation takes with the book's dry wit. Yeah. But, yeah, I just, I did not find 
you can't choose your father, but you can choose your daddy. <laughs> the, like the best message to have straight after, <gasps> you know, we kill the four horsemen. <laughs> yeah. With the power of kids' frustration at adults killing the planet. But, yeah. but sure. I mean, I, I do understand that. Also, a nice Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy reference. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. I'm Mary Poppins, yo! <laughs> Uh, but they do, they do, to be fair, lean harder on, like, that theme that you mentioned about children being angry about adults killing the world mm. as well, because, like, in the book, you know, the bit with the four horsemen, I actually don't understand it to this day, I have no idea what's going on. Like, the kids yeah. wave sticks at the guy, at the four horsemen in approximations of their special symbols, and for some reason yes. that gets rid of them, and I really don't understand why. Probably missing something. But in the series, it, it works really well because, like, instead of having these props, they just don't have them and the kids defeat the horsemen with their belief and their active choice to choose, like, a better world. You know, yeah. like, they, they sh- just reject these things and then they go away. And also, like, Pepper yelling at war, I believe in peace, bitch, and then stabbing her is just great. <laughs> it's great. I was so happy. It made me yeah, really happy. It's, it's a good line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this theme hits really hard these days, and I'm glad they doubled down on it. Um, now that the apocalypse looks a lot closer than it did in 1990, which I will uh, remind everyone oh was like right around the end of the Cold War, when the chances of us all dying in a like fiery inferno were actually lower than ever. Whereas now, we are all going to die, so yep, you know, pretty likely. And also the idea of Armageddon coming around because of a child being pissed at the state of the world and what adults yeah. have done to it. I mean, yeah. look around you. Why wouldn't he be? It was enough for Greta Thunberg. I've had that literal breakdown in the past two months. <laughs> right. I've had that in the past. When did the coup happen? Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> no. no, I had a literal like, seven days. <laughs> I had a literal we shouldn't even exist kind of moment. Um, so I get it. I get it. <laughs> uh, Come yeah, no, hellhound. <laughs> Let us rid this oh world. Oh my god. It's, it's nice to hear that to the, the kids are alright, you know? It's nice to know that they're fine. And so like, as much as we complain about... I would have loved... I wouldn't have liked them cutting this out either. I just wish they'd given it less screen time is basically all I have to say. Like, if it had yeah. been a subplot rather than the main plot, I would have been really into it. Um, yeah. It's okay, Kim. I it's fine. Uh, <laughs> any other business? Yeah, well, you seem to have some. I have some business, it's true. Um, okay, you know, I <laughs> I just wanted to point out, like, the diverse casting was a whole thing when the casting announcements first came out, and I'm really into it. I mean, I will say that I think, as much as I love the woman playing Anathema, and I think she's mm. really hot um, and pretty and like, good at her job, um, and I like that she's Puerto Rican. She can bewitch me any day. I do think that there are some unfortunate implications. I mean, obviously the witchfinder thing was already a problem, as we said, but like Newt's a white guy, and Anathema <laughs> is not, and she's a witch, and he and he's hunting her down. Is and hunting her down in her, in her That's, nipples. You know, bad. But like, arguably, the entire subplot was not salvageable in the first place. So never mind. I must now have sex with you. It is written. Yeah, no. That does not work. Um, But it's alright, you know. <laughs> but like, okay, but to be fair, aside from that, there were also other bits. Like, a lot of people were really into, for instance, a non-binary actor being cast as pollution, um, Pepper being black, not to mention mm. the voice of God being Francis McDormand now, which, like, nice. 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 I personally am... Su- I'm super behind all of this, obviously. Um, My only complaint is that God obviously should have been Judy Dench. 
That's all I have to say about <laughs> Okay, that's fair. <laughs> Sorry for Yeah, Francis the voice McDormand. of um, detached cosmic chess player god is Francis McDormand, and the voice of the Metatron is... Oh, crud, that guy who's in every Shakespeare play ever. Oh, that's going to annoy is me. Is he... Like, does Him, he play the master in Doctor Who uh, at some point? Yeah, he does. He, he plays does. the older master. Him! Anyway, yes. Uh, <laughs> Wait, no, I will find this. Okay, while you look for it, I'm also going to point out that I think this diverse casting was made all the better um, by the fact that they also purge every instance of the word Oriental, which is in the book a lot. A lot! It's in there all the time. I, t- I did notice that, yeah. It, because it's completely know. purged from the TV series, which I really appreciate. Um, they also get rid of Newt's extremely racist, quote-unquote, Japanese car. It's literally called the Wasabi, <laughs> and it just makes me really unhappy. Um, Wasabi, what? And Madam Tracy's, and I'm quoting here, Indian Spirit Guide. Mm. And also Shadwell's landlord being Bangladeshi and someone who does voodoo. Like, why? Why is that there? I don't care about his landlord. I I mean, to be fair, I think that was just what? Shadwell being racist, but like at this point, yeah, <laughs> no, just, just get rid of it. I'm glad it's gone. I'm glad it's gone. Well done, Neil Gaiman, for getting rid of you being racist 30 years ago. That's character development. I respect it. <laughs> yeah. Also, back to the David Tennant podcast, this time interviewing Neil Gaiman. Uh, Gaiman said that writing Good Omens was like an apprenticeship for him, you know, with yeah. with Terry Pratchett. Uh, and that there was no real intention to sell the book when they were first writing it. Mm. You know, Tezza and Neil were just <laughs> jamming and writing stuff with each other because it was fun. Yeah. Uh, so, hey, Kim want to write random crap to each other and accidentally produce a beloved novel that later gets adapted and maybe breaks Tumblr? Absolutely. And you know what? I have the time to do that now because guess who finished the first draft of a novel today? Ah, congratulations. Woo! Thank you for being productive, by the way. Wow. Okay, fine. And on that <laughs> beautiful note, <laughs> let's wrap up this angel. love story for the ages. Uh, yes. Go on. With pleasure. Mm. With earthly pleasure. Omens, a collaborative work between Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, released in 1990, is a witty comedy about an angel and a demon just trying to do their jobs and failing. (laughs) There are lots of plot threads and characters being juggled around, and it's a miracle that it's as cohesive as it is. The sheer number of jokes in it is impressive, and most of them are absolute stonkers, just not the ones about (laughs) Bangladeshi voodoo. Uh, yeah, not that. If I ever get off my ass and actually write a book like him, I'd Ooh. give my left foot for it to be as funny as this is. Mm-hmm. Also, can confirm the M25 is the result of demonic influence. <laughs> Screw that um... motorway. <laughs> so hard. Good Omens, released in 2019 and created, written, and partially produced by Neil Gaiman, is a beautiful love story of our times um, that cleverly updates its source text drawing out and developing its most interesting themes, giving its main characters actual arcs, and shifting the whole story from pure comedy to moving dramedy. Its biggest flaw is an almost slavish devotion to the source material, um, which is quite a big flaw, actually, and it gets in the way of the very good adaptational work it's otherwise trying to do. But I think we've complained enough about what is obviously at least in part a response to, you know, actual grief. It's a shame. Uh, but the series isn't. The series actually is something to really be proud of, so good going to Mr. Gaiman. Rest in peace, Terry, we miss you. Rest in peace, Terry. Thank you for listening to Scribe to Screen. Join us next time when we'll be covering a short story. Ooh, it's an excuse to give us less to read. 
Namely, Haruki Murakami's <laughs> Barn Burning from his collection The Elephant Vanishes and the 2018 film Burning, directed by Lee Chang-dong. We'd like to thank our patrons, Dr. Faustus, Mimi Byans, Jack Slater, and Claire So. If you want to see more of Kim's work, you can find her on Twitter at, at Kimberly underscore Chu, and you can find her music on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash chukayan. If you want to see more of Charles's work, you can find him on Twitter at, at @albertonica, and he also writes a blog about game design at www.ludonarrativebritannance.com. Give us money at patreon.com forward slash scribe to screen. We're also on Twitter at at scribe underscore two, on Facebook at at scribe to screen pod, and on Instagram at scribe to screen. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Mama. Just burned a witch. It was something to do on Saturdays, <laughs> and I couldn't be bothered to interrogate my issues with women and my relationship da, with truth. Mama. Da. I wait. No, I've forgotten it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Mama. Your backing is not helping me. Sorry. I hate vegan food. So now I've got it thrown it all away. Terrible. You go too high for me, Charles. <laughs> <laughs>